Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. I wanted to announce some good news, everyone. We are now on Amazon Music and on Audible. So be sure to check out these additional platforms where you can hear this podcast. Again, Amazon Music and Audible. Enjoy. And just a quick announcement about where we are being listened to around the world. Thank you so much again to the listener from Germany who reached out to me and let me know more about what was interesting to them about the show based on where they lived and their nation's history. And also the listener who I heard from in Australia who talked about why that show resonates for them as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to be in touch and explaining what is kind of in your heart, in your head, and what draws you to the show. I will be sure to respond to your emails in due time. But I wanted just to make mention also of how many people are listening to us in Australia in general, and also Norway and Ireland, Belgium, Switzerland, Finland, Canada. We were actually ranked really high in Canada recently, which is lovely. And Poland, which is very powerful for me and for my family's history of dealing with kind of groupthink firsthand and the dangers that that can cause. So thank you to all of our supporters and our listeners around the world. Today, we welcome you to another exciting crossover episode. It's always so good to bring in new listeners and expose our listeners to other creators doing great work in the cult education community. People like today's guest, Casey, who is the host and creator of The Cult Vault, an award-nominated long-form podcast focusing on the true testimonies of cult survivors. Casey began her podcast during the COVID-19 lockdown, which coincided with her maternity leave. At first, it was intended to be focused on researching cult cases from history and presenting them to those who might be interested in listening. But as survivors began reaching out, she realized her platform had turned into something more a place for stories to be told and for Casey and her listeners to learn about cult dynamics from those who have experienced them themselves. You can listen to The Cult Vault on your favorite podcast player and find more information on Casey's website at cultvaultpodcast.com. Here's Casey now. It is my pleasure to be talking to Casey from Cult Vault. I love the name of your show. It's fantastic. And this is going to be a nice crossover episode for both of us. So I'd love you to say hello, and then we will start our banter. Hi, Rachel. It's so great to be here with you today. I've been a big fan of your work for a really long time. And I know that we've both had the honor of chatting to a lot of the same guests as well. So I am really excited for us to just talk to each other today and the differences and similarities of our shows and and the work that we do in the world. 
Yeah. And speaking about the world, we're in different parts of the world. And I always find that really interesting to be able to sort of decipher what speaks to people in different parts of the world. Sometimes when I put that out on the podcast, I hear from people from all over and they will say, you know, oh, I live in Germany or I live here or I live there. And this is what I'm worried about, or this is what I see, or this is what I think the people around me need to understand more. So maybe we can start with that, with your part of the world, and what what are you seeing in your area? Well, specifically in my area of the world, I am in Liverpool in the United Kingdom, and there is always a lot going on over here in regards to football. There's the over here, we have the red and blue, but it's a bit different to your red and blue, uh, the Everton and Liverpool football clubs. And uh, there's unfortunately, occasionally stuff in the news about gun violence, which is quite shocking over here because, of course, we don't have guns and gun laws or gun laws that allow us to carry any type of firearm. Also, we see a lot about... The human rights movement, LGBTQIA community, um, and uh, a lot of emphasis on growing marginalized community groups in Liverpool. And I think that's part of the reason why I love being here so much. It's a really inclusive community, despite what people hear in the news about football hooliganism and gun violence and the criminal underbelly of drugs and car thefts. We are so close to the water here where the ferry leaves for Ireland. A lot of cars are deported that way, and that's why it's a big hotspot for for crime. But it really is such a beautiful and colourful and vibrant and inclusive city, and I absolutely love it. I moved here around 12 years ago, and and it just stole my heart. So I'll have to stay here until I get it back. (laughs) And, uh, And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Specifically, what's happening in my area at the moment is lots of strikes. The bin collections are on strikes, and the trains are on strikes, and the nurses are on strikes. And I think that this is quite interesting, because I've been thinking and talking a lot lately about disenchantment in society and how it's a very razor edge time in terms of vulnerabilities where people might be more susceptible than usual for falling into cults, high control groups, or the rabbit holes of conspiracy theories, uh, which is something that I began to think about differently after coming to your ICSA panel this year. (laughs) Okay, good. Um, So I have a bit of a a Liverpool background, I suppose. I found out that actually some of my ancestors stopped there as they were um, coming by boat from Eastern Europe. But I studied there uh, for a term in the 80s and was at the University of Liverpool and worked at the Liverpool Council for Voluntary Service and at a special needs school for really severely disabled children, it was so they were so so sweet, and they just really needed a lot of care. And I remember the Albert Dock having been this building that was um, the windows were all broken. It was sort of a sanctuary for pigeons, basically. I took some black and white photos there that could have been from a hundred years before because they lo- looked very dated. And now I know it's a maritime museum and a shopping center and all these things. And I learned how to pronounce the Albert Doch. I, I had to learn how to say it just right. But it was a beautiful city, I th- multicultural and gritty at the time, but growing into something beautiful. But there was a feeling of connection and camaraderie and people know their neighbors and 
That was new for me from where I was from in Los Angeles, where I, I knew people, but it's not that same kind of feeling. And I've thought about that a lot with people who get involved in organizations where they're looking for connection, they're looking for community, and how it might be so strong as a preventative measure if people sitting alone in their flats would have someone come by and say, hi, would you like to come for supper? Would you, you know, would you like to basically not feel alone in the world? Because I think that does promote a lot of people being open to connections that are not necessarily healthy ones. That is a really interesting observation because I I spoke to Alexandra Stain just two days ago and we were talking about how there's been a shift in social clubs and groups that people might join and the pubs are closing down all over the UK and social hotspots that people would typically have spent time in around the 70s and 80s don't really exist in the same way that they used to. A lot of people are, are buying cheap alcohol and drinking at home as opposed to visiting the pubs with the higher prices. So because there is less of that community vibe in a lot of English areas and and areas of Britain, that, that could be a reason why there is an increase in coercive control cases in the UK. And I think that that also extends to the growth in the digital age as well and how easy it is for people to find some type of connection or community in a virtual sense as opposed to a physical sense like you would find in a chess club or a social club whose numbers are are dwindling at this point so that's really yeah that's really interesting I've just had that conversation yeah I mean I, I it was very moving to me to know that I could be somewhere just for a few months and and make connections and have professors who were really able to reach out and I got invited to homes in um, Wales, Uh, but it was incredibly beautiful. And just being in someone's home where there was a hearth, but people taking the time, making the effort, you know, I just, I think so much would be cured because of that and prevented because of that in general. Because I know I talked to many people who who will say I stayed for much longer than I realized I should have just because I didn't want to leave a community. And that's very powerful. I really love that you've been able to experience the the culture of the city, even if it was uh, a long time ago. And just to be able to explain to you where I live and then for you to say, ah, yes, I've been there. And I, I felt the same way. It means that I'm definitely correcting the effect that the city has had on me as a person. It really is a wonderful place to be. And it's funny because it's very much a Labour constituency and there's been a call for Liverpool to go through its own independence vote so that it can become sort of its own its own region, which I thought was quite funny. Independence for Liverpool. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful city. I, uh, I love being here. And Betsy Coward, that's another example of how you can go from Liverpool to Wales, which is a different country, in sort of a 30-minute drive. And it's absolutely beautifully picturesque in Wales. It's phenomenal just to be able to take that drive and be out of the city and into the countryside where some of the most beautiful areas of the United Kingdom can be found. Yeah, it's wonderful. And of course, I had to take a ferry across the Mersey because I had to because of the song. <laughs> um, so it was really lovely. I wonder about about you, and I know you've talked on your own shows about this, but what brings you to this 
interest and wanting to also make your mark in, in being a resource to the public? Absolutely. I find myself in a position that was never intentional. I started the podcast during the first phase of lockdown with a newborn baby and a partner that had a full-time job that he had to continue doing throughout the pandemic and no support from outside sources. No friends or family could come and visit and really just needed something that was separate to motherhood, which is the greatest gift to me. I absolutely adore being a mother and my children are both so beautiful. But sometimes, especially when you're breastfeeding, it can feel like very overwhelming. And when you're stuck in the house and you can't leave and you're just in the same routine, which is very good, actually, for babies. Routine is very good. But sometimes it can be a little bit stir crazy for for me. I don't want to speak for everybody. And I think it's okay to feel that way. It's sometimes, I think, taboo to talk about how it's difficult to be a parent. But it is difficult to be a parent and it's okay to feel like sometimes you want a little bit of uh, of distance or a break. That's completely normal and, and natural, I think. Um, so I tried baking and that didn't work. And then I tried knitting and, and that didn't work. And then I was emptying a box in one of our spare rooms and I found this old room mic and a load of notes that I'd made on Unsolved Mysteries. And I thought, oh yeah, I had that really funny idea that I was going to start a podcast. And then I thought, well, why why not start a podcast? I see if that works. See see if that, you know, itches the scratch of something different of of a hobby. And um I was speaking to my friend on the phone who had just finished reading um Jenna Miscavige's memoir about her escaping Scientology and then she said, you should read the book and you should do a podcast on cults. And I thought, wow, yes, cults are interesting. And so I did my first few episodes on infamous cults from history and then thought I knew everything there was to know about the subject and did the whole Dunning-Kruger thing where I then got approached by a woman named Helen Zuman, who I'm sure you've uh, spoken with before mm-hmm. and she said I've actually written a memoir about my time in a group on Zendik Farm would you like to read it and I said yes please and I read the memoir and she's such an, an incredible writer and I said Helen would you consider coming on my show and she said yes and I was like my my back was dripping with sweat throughout the whole <laughs> interview and I was so nervous and, and I called it a sex cult at one point and she told me off And she was like, well, actually, that's incorrect because it was a group that had a radical take on sex and relationships, but it wasn't a sex cult. And I will always remember that line in my head. And that was the first of many, many corrections and lessons on my journey to where I am today, which I appreciate because how can we grow and how can we become better informed if we're not willing to listen to corrections when we make mistakes? So Then I realized after speaking with Helen that there was so much more to the subject of cults than I'd ever considered before, that I'd even been thought to believe existed through watching documentaries and films. And after I released my interview with Helen, more and more people started emailing with the wish to share their story. So the podcast just kind of changed from there. Helen's 
entrance into my life changed the trajectory of the show and my life now because I can't see myself doing anything different. I feel like I'm almost three years into this now and 200 and something episodes later and it's almost like I've self-trained in a new industry because I'd never had experience in podcasting before and now here I am outside of the lockdown as a full-time podcaster. <laughs> it's quite it's quite amazing. Um... I have something similar where I never thought I'd be doing a podcast. So when you talked, first of all, about the challenges of being a mom, even though, you know, you're loving it and, you know, and loving these new human beings tremendously, it is okay to admit that you need a break or you need to have adult conversation or you just need to have quiet time or you need to just be thinking about nothing in particular or no one in particular. And that's okay. And then you can come back refreshed and then be more present and be the, the mom you want to be in, in a greater way. And what I find interesting about that is just being able to say, this is how I feel and it's okay. Most of the population that I deal with, don't, they don't have that luxury. They are told how they're supposed to feel about things. And if they don't feel that way, they're, they're thinking and feeling wrong. And it's punishable somehow by the leader or by God or whatever the philosophy is. So I think people who have never been in a cult experience don't realize how huge it is. Huge. For you to be able to say, you know what, I have this thought and it may or may not be a popular one, but it's true. It's real. And it's okay for me to feel it. I mean, that it, it's such a symbol of freedom to be able to do that. And one that I think people don't realize in, in terms of just how, how important it is to have and how that's taken away when you're in a cultic system. And then the idea of something not being a sex cult. I also learned from hearing people who are in many groups that you know, the media then would just sort of get it to this moniker of sex cult. And then it became very difficult for people to want to come forward and say, I was in this group because now it's connected to this term. And for some people, it's not at all about sex. Often it's, mm, that's not the either the intention or that's not why they got involved. And it, might just be happening to some of the people there. I also learned about the term victim. There are some people who take offense to the term victim. So I'm careful not to talk about someone being a victim of a cult, but I'll ask them how they refer to themselves in relation to their experience. Because not only do, I, there's nothing wrong with the word and some people are fine with it and they say, yes, that I was victimized. So I can call myself a victim. But for other people, I think they're not wanting to be classified. And also with a lot of these large group awareness trainings at EST and LifeSpring, et cetera, there's the real pathologizing of the of the word victim, that you have to sit in the victim's row. And you're if you were abused as a child, then you're kind of getting into your victim self and somehow that's a put down. So, you know, all these words are are so charged. So it's interesting that you had that experience and it's good to be open to that. I've needed to do the same. Yeah. And I think I was researching Zendik and Zendik Farm, and it was actually in an article that had sex cult in its title that led me to then use that in the interview with Helen. So you're exactly right. And a lot of my education has been trying to change how I perceive, think, feel, approach the subject of cults and coercive control in regards to individuals who have been through this lived experience as somebody that does not have the lived experience and also having to understand that as I learn more I reflect on interviews where I think 
Oh, I've said something similar to that, which is so inappropriate. So I've never wanted to be the type of content creator that says, if you don't like the podcast, don't listen. I don't think that that's helpful for me. It's not helpful for the listeners and it's not helpful for future guests that come on the show. We absolutely in this space have to be receptive to constructive criticism and corrections in our language. Otherwise, I'm not licensed. You're licensed and and I can't work in a in a kind of therapizing or counselor position. And I I make a real conscious effort not to say anything that's armchair diagnosing, to not give any type of therapy advice to anybody. And and that's because we have an ethical obligation not to do those things if we're not trained or licensed to do them. So it's really trying to juggle so many things inside your mind about using sensitive language using sensitive terminology, addressing guests in a way that they feel comfortable, but also trying not to assume things about their experiences based on what we've consumed from the media. Because I used to binge true crime documentaries and podcasts and not even really think about the people whose stories were being told. And that makes me feel so uncomfortable now. After speaking to so many people and realizing that every single person whose story that I've listened to for entertainment purposes has a family, has their own children, their own parents, has so many people that have been affected by the events that took place against that person who may not even be alive anymore. And so I am incredibly thankful for the education that I've received through every single episode that I have had the opportunity to be a part of, because now I can truly try and make a conscious effort to not only change the perceptions of those that join cults or people born and raised in cults who you know I wouldn't have even considered before I started the show nobody's born into a cult people just join them and it makes me like my butt cheeks clench because it makes me so uncomfortable now that that's how I used to think but (laughs) if I'm having this education it's my hope that people that have been with me through this journey have had that same education and so we're all learning and changing and having conversations with people outside of the podcasts that hopefully then has some kind of domino effect on them thinking about cults and coercion differently as well. There's something really very powerful about apologizing and not just apologizing, but having it mean something, meaning that you then shift how you are and what you're doing so that you don't do that again, whatever that is that bothered someone. Because with all the families I've worked with over the years, one of the things that stays with children is saying that their parents never apologized for the things they did, or they never took responsibility. They never acknowledged. Same thing happens in cults. So you don't have a cult leader who apologizes, who takes responsibility. It's all back on you. So there's something actually monumental without you realizing it for you to say, oh, thanks for letting me know. I'll be, I'll be careful about that, or I won't use that. That might seem like a very lovely, generous thing to do. But for someone who's never had that in their life before, I think they suddenly feel safe. They feel heard. They feel like their feelings mattered. It's very big. And it doesn't take a lot to apologize, but it only means something if it shifts your behavior in some way. And I mean, there was actually one person who said, no, no, you you know, you have it wrong. My cult leader apologized for things and 
And I said, so can you give me an example of an apology? Was yeah, they would say, well, I'm sorry if you misunderstood what I was saying. <laughs> I'm sorry that you are so weak that you couldn't tolerate what I was trying to do for you. That's not an apology. It's just reinforcing of a message that the person wants to get across to you, and it's an insult. But came out like an apology, but you know, it really wasn't one. So it's it's more of that kind of tricky language that we see very slippery language within manipulative uh, relationships and within cults. I'm wondering about some of the stories you've heard about people who were kind of taken in by that kind of slippery language, thinking that the person they were dealing with was really fair-minded or or kind, but at the end of the day, really were not. I'm sure you've heard some of those stories. There's been so many different stories that are similar in that vein. And I think what is interesting to me when I do the show is I find people's stories interesting and I find the connections that you can weave from one group to another absolutely fascinating. I can't seem to stop myself from thinking or saying, oh my goodness, that sounds just like such and such who was in this group when this happened to them. And my mind is just always connecting all of these dots. But the group that sticks out for me the most in terms of the insidious use of language to say one thing and do another or to say something that actually later on means something else is Shinchunji. And they have this worldwide process that they apply to all of their groups in all of the countries that they exist within, where they proselytize mostly on university campuses. And they invite people to something that seems innocuous, a Bible study. And then they ask individuals if they want to commit to 12 weeks of Bible study. And then after those 12 weeks, they invite people to a session where they reveal to the individual that all of those other newbies that joined the Bible study alongside them are actually historical members of Shinchunji who have all been reporting back to the Bible study teacher your movements, your thoughts, your feelings about Bible study, about the group, about whether you're going to stay on after your 12 weeks. And then it's revealed to them that actually the name of the group is Shinchunji, which they haven't told you up to this point, and that they believe in a South Korean messiah, and then go on to tell you all about Lee Man Hee. And I just think that it's all so cloak and dagger, and it's all so restrictive in the information that is given, or the information is manipulated in a way to make you think that it's something different to what it is. There's a lot of stuff in the media about it now in regards to New Zealand and Australia trying to get some type of legal framework in place to tackle groups like Shinchunji because of the nature of the information control. Um, so in regards to tricky language, I think it's that group that I come back to more times than not. It's interesting. And so that's a group that we haven't yet talked about on this show. So yeah, if you can let us know a little bit about the group, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Shinchunji is a group that originated from South Korea and was created by a man named Lee Man Hee. So according to, to SCJ, which it's shortened to, Shinchunji has around 300,000 members worldwide. And the creator, Lee Man-hee, is the figurehead of the group, although 
people typically in these smaller Bible study classes who after 12 weeks, they take a test and commit themselves to Shinchindi. They don't meet Lee Man He. He is somewhere else living a life of complete luxury from the money that he gets from running a high control religious group. And interestingly, if you look at the tenets of Shinchunji, a lot of it is either stolen from, inspired, or just happens to be very similar to the Unification Church and the World Mission Society Church of God, both of which also originated out of South Korea and have South Korean leaders who present themselves as messiahs. So I think that that is fascinating. That's the sort of stuff that gets me sort of like, okay, so what year did they all become established religions? And and when did parts of their core doctrine change? And did it happen to follow suit after, you know, the Unification Church being the biggest of the three? made changes to their own structure and their own dogma. And I think that that is, that is really interesting. But the more that I learned about Shinchunji, the more that I realized that there is a lot of cultic language within the group that we wouldn't necessarily understand as lay people sitting in a coffee shop next to one of these Bible studies taking place. So they have WhatsApp groups made up of leaves and fruit. So if I was to be approached on university campus and asked typically something like, do you believe in God? Or um, are you looking for a social club to join? And I answer yes. And then the person says, well, I'm going to a Bible study later. Maybe we can go for a Bible study one-on-one. Do you want to go and grab a coffee? And I say, sure, let's grab a coffee. And then after a couple of these coffee meetings, I'm invited to go to a Bible study class. And the class is made up of six to 12 people. And I'm told that within those six to 12 people, myself and 10 others are all new members. They're all university students and they're all looking for exactly the same thing as me. And then there's a WhatsApp group that is created. I am called a leaf. I am a leaf because I am not yet a fruit. So uh, the leaves have WhatsApp groups named after them. So there's a WhatsApp group called Casey. And within that group, all of the other members of Shinchunji who are posing as leaves but actually are established members of the religion, they all contribute bits of information to this WhatsApp group that I have absolutely no idea exists. They're swapping information on my routine, my friends, how I think and feel about the Bible study sessions. And then the Bible study teacher comes to me with this almost enlightened, omnipotent knowledge about me struggling in my psychology class or me having difficulties with my boyfriend. And that of course, only feeds into my belief that this is the place that I should be. And then after those 12 weeks, you're invited to this small ceremony where it's revealed to me that all the other leaves in the Bible study group are actually members of Shinchunji. And they couldn't tell me because they needed me to find my own way. And they needed me to make sure that I knew that this was the right decision for me to fully commit myself to the group. And they were so worried that if they would have told me the truth, I never would have been able to make that journey independently. So this is kind of what I mean when I say that the universal tactics that are used around the the world by this group 
It doesn't matter if you speak to somebody from America, if you speak to somebody in Australia, if you speak to somebody in the UK, the MO of Shinchunji is exactly the same. And it's, again, that tricky language and positioning it as if they were doing me a favor. So these established members of Shinchunji that are posing as leaves, they are called fruit. And the fruit go out and they proselytize to find leaves and then the leaves become the fruit and then the fruit is deployed to use exactly the same recruitment tactics that was used on them in the first place. Wow. Okay. You know, that whole idea that they withhold information from you for you is very trippy. That whole idea of like lying by omission or commission for your benefit is sort of across the board. If you had known, then you wouldn't have gotten involved and then you couldn't have been saved, blah, 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 blah. It really is just blah, 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 because it's meaningless. Because ultimately, the way I think people can be treated most respectfully is by being able to make a fully educated decision. And without all the information, you can't make that. But to know also that that's built into the system, that it's withheld from you, for you, but really it's to entrap you then if there's a way that people could sort of change the pronouns in their mind, that if you're being told this is for you and you can hear, ah, this is for them. And if you can translate that each time, sort of switch it around in your mind, that some something is being done to you and you're told that it's for you. Mm, okay, no, maybe it's for them. Maybe it's for him. Maybe it's for the organization. Let me see how that would work for them. And to try to evaluate that in the moment, because also, I mean, it's interesting, there's so many layers to this, because then if you feel like information is being withheld, you won't mind if it's withheld again and in other ways, because you'll trust the system that it's being done for your benefit. And so then you kind of learn to not be bothered by it. And you also learn to not explore, to find out information, because you know that if you can't gain access to it somehow, that's for your benefit. But it also sets up reciprocity. And you might feel like you want to give back to this group that is doing the heavy lifting, like they're knowing what they need to withhold from you in order to save your soul. So you're then in a position where you feel you have to be grateful and thank the people who are keeping you in the dark. Wow. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we spoke uh, earlier and you talked about how important community is. I remember how much my life changed from moving from a tiny, tiny little seaside town where everybody knew everybody up to a major city like Liverpool and how much my life changed in those first 12 weeks of university. I was in a completely different place in the country. I was away from all of my friends and family and everything that I'd ever known. I was being offered alcohol. I was working in a bar back home, but it wasn't interesting for me to drink because I wasn't in that social environment. These individuals, 12 weeks after being a part of this community where the love bombing is happening, where they are being treated like they are VIPs within the Bible study group, 12 weeks is a long time for an individual in that environment to then be told that the withheld information was for their benefit to then say, well, actually, do you know what? It's not for me. There's so much that's already happening in terms of deepening an individual's involvement that is so much more than withholding that information, which is already so difficult to wrap your mind around, I think. 
Oh my goodness, yes. And and also the idea that there are people who are posing as first-time students and who are not. That also happens almost across the board. And someone is is collecting your information, siphoning it off to the leadership, posing as someone who's just interested in you and engaging you in a conversation and you're opening up to them because you think they're in the same position you are and just as innocently there as you are. Mm, it's reminding me, uh, there's a group called the Kabbalah Learning Center, and I went to go investigate it when people were coming to me saying that they had had certain experiences that they were that they thought were problematic there. They're all over, but there was one near me, and I, I went to go check it out. And uh, they also said the same thing. And so I, I know to know now that that's not true. And they say, oh, thank you. You're all new students here, and this is your first time. Welcome. So I'm thinking, okay, so there are people in the room who are there, who have been planted there, who are going to be watching, who are going to be engaging in conversation. And I thought, okay, I want to sort of know who they are if I can figure this out. And so I remember I had to keep a chart. It was hard to remember this. I had to write it down under the table, actually, who I told what to. And I shifted the story each time. So then I would know if it came back to me who the person was who told it, who wasn't new there like I was. Once you sort of learn, you kind of get into the head of a PI, I guess you sometimes need to do that. I was just thinking, private investigator, that was what I was just thinking, yeah. Right, because I thought, you know, who is really the person here who's being used? I mean, they're being used. There are victims in this story, too. They think they're doing the right thing by pretending to be something they're not. So already you're given carte blanche to to basically lie um, to others and to deceive them, which a lot of people leaving cults feel very bad about. They know they were utilized in this way and they feel very bad about it. But it wasn't too hard to figure out who that person was. When I went back for, I had to go then back for a second meeting so I could see who would approach me with what information (laughs) I knew who the plant was. But I thought this shouldn't be happening at all. I mean, there's a part of me that thought, okay, good, good on me that after a couple of decades of doing this, I've sort of learned the system. But what? This shouldn't be happening at all. People are going to a, a spiritual organization or some whatever it is because they're hurt, because they're feeling alone, because they're scared, and they just go right into this machine and don't realize it. It's really wrong. It is, and it's a nuanced thing by this point. It's a tried and tested methodology that is probably more successful than not. And what comes into play there in my mind with these types of environments where there are plants in in the audience or in the group is also the kind of Solomon Ash conformity aspect of things. Because if everybody else is saying, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. I wish I had access to this information 10 years ago. This is going to change my life. And you're sitting there thinking, I didn't hear anything that that sounded like that was going to do that for me. But if there's a number of people in the room who are all echoing those sentiments, then you start to think, oh, maybe I Maybe I'm interpreting things wrong. Maybe this is the best thing in the world. Oh my goodness, I'm so lucky to be here. There's so much that goes on. And I honestly, I find it so fascinating deconstructing all of these things. But then think to myself, how does anybody ever have a chance when it's not just one manipulative tactic that's at play, but several that all interlink and all bolster each other into creating an airtight grip on an individual who is at their most vulnerable, perhaps. It's interesting, but it's it's deadly sometimes, these these combinations of manipulation. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is at, at a 
it's extreme, and that is what's possible. And that's why it's good to, you know, keep track of these groups and watch as much as you can. But I like the way you said that. Yes, it's airtight. And then you have the people who are so enthusiastic and you wonder why you're not and you wonder what you're missing. There is this idea of the majority being so influential. And if you feel like you're the only one, it's very hard. And you also can sometimes have people turning on you. I had that one time when I was on jury duty, when I was the only one. It was like a 12 angry men situation where I was the only one who really thought this person was innocent. And meanwhile, I was nursing at the time and I really needed to go home. And it was a Friday afternoon. I knew there was going to be traffic. And I was also, I was in pain, but I thought that's not enough of a reason to send someone to jail. And people did turn on me because they really wanted to go home and they wanted conformity. And, you know, and I thought it's so interesting that if I, if it mattered to me that they didn't like me, I could imagine voting along with them you know, just because it would make my life easier. But then I knew it would make this man's life a lot harder, that there wasn't enough evidence to put him away. But people were just, you know, afraid of being disliked in the jury room. Really? That's a reason? I think it's hard, though, also because there's this social contagion. And so even if people are not enthusiastic at the beginning, they become so. And I don't know if that's something you've come across where people said they were sort of caught up in something because the people around them were. I think that immediately I think of Spencer Schneider and I think about his experiences in the esoteric school that Sharon Gans led in in New York and Boston. And the reason I think of Spencer is because when he was initially approached and told about this secret group, he wasn't interested. He told the guy where to go, basically. And then he felt so bad about how he'd spoken to the guy that he went back to him and said, "Okay, yeah, I'll give it a try. And I just wish that he hadn't. But um, when I think when that that's the kind of thing that, that I go straight back to when when you mention somebody that really wasn't on board to begin with, but then Spencer was involved in this group for over twenty years after that initial meeting that he went to. So I think that that just goes to show how our human nature can win out when we feel like we might have upset somebody. How interesting, right? So then I think about the people who judge people for getting involved in things like this. And really often it's these stories. It's someone just being a mensch, someone being nice, but that there are people who have a code that they follow by that dictates how they behave. And he felt bad about how he was and how he interacted with this person. So then he acquiesced. It's often these very wonderful, lovely qualities that are the ones that are tapped into or the ones that hold you to a certain standard that then a manipulator can absolutely take advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then that makes me think of Jurette Bouillon when I think about her good nature and how much she, how warm she is and how open she is and trusting and all of those qualities that Jurette has and has and has astonishingly been able to hold on to despite her experience. All of those qualities were exploited when when she came into contact with the leader of the group that she became involved in for, an, for a, a, a large amount of her life. So again, absolutely spot on, Rachel. Your insight is just amazing. I love how you're able to just, this is a, a incredible. I mean, I guess that's what happens after years and years and years of working in the field as a licensed 
marriage and family therapist. Well, thank you. Some of it comes from just listening and making the connections and meeting people face to face and seeing that these are the people who might be looked down upon by society, but I'm looking up to them. They have these wonderful core qualities. And you're right, some of them still do after what they've been put through. So it shows that that's really just who they are, which is quite incredible. I mean, the, I don't know how people do that, but the resilience and the tenacity to just stay who you are, it takes a lot of bravery. I'm wondering if there are other stories, other cult groups, other things that have stayed with you with the research that you've done, the groups you've found out about. There's a few that come to mind. And I was absolutely astonished by the turn of events that took place in this interview. And when people ask me, what's the most shocking interview that you've ever done? I always say it's with Kerry Noble, who was a co-leader of the Covenant, the Sword and the Arm of the Lord. Initially, it was Kerry's description of going out to this isolated ranch in America to become part of a Christian group in the 70s, uprooting his family. And they're moving out there and feeling like he was part of a utopia that he was helping to build an intentional community. And he truly felt that he'd found the right place for him to be in the world. And eventually, Kerry would go on to become the co-leader of the Covenant, the Sword and the Arm of the Lord, which is shortened to CSA. And Kerry Noble would provide the biblical sessions and the other leader would provide the sort of journey and the goals of the group and how they should be shifting and changing and what they should be aiming for and through a really unfortunate set of events that led Kerry and this other individual to start believing in very racist and homophobic rhetoric that they were being influenced by and given to from other ranches in the nearby area, Kerry ended up becoming part of a right-wing religious militia. They were collecting firearms, they were building bombs, they were planting landmines, they were training everybody up how to defend themselves because there was going to be people of different ethnicities coming to take all of their supplies that they were collecting for the end times and gay people were going to be responsible for bringing on the end times. And actually, at one point, Kerry took a pipe bomb in a briefcase into an LGBT-friendly church with the intention of setting the bomb off. And Kerry has served prison time, and he now is a public speaker who has written books and talks about his experiences in life and how we can find ourselves even after we've absolutely lost ourselves. So. Initially, what I held on to with Kerry's interview was this idea that he had found a utopia. And he said to me, I should have just left after three years. And how many people have said to you, Rachel, I should have just left after X amount of time. It would have just been a blissful part of my life that I would have reflected on and thought, wow, maybe I wish I could be back there or I wish that I would have stayed because life could have been like that forever. There are so many people that say that, but I think Kerry was the first person to explicitly say that. And then the direction that our conversation took, of course, I was in shock to hear him speaking so openly with so much accountability to the things that he had done. And I think that I am very fond of the Kerry that I spoke to and not so fond of the Kerry that I heard about. 
And so those two things as an interviewer were hard to reconcile for myself during that interview. And then wrapping up our conversation, he talked about how he has a very uh, liberal family that is made up of various cultural elements. And he spoke about how all of those things that he hated, all of those things that he fought against in that group, are now the things that make up his family that he feels so privileged and so thankful for. And again, that to me, absolutely fascinating. Wow. I like the way you said that you were fond of the Carrie you were talking to, not fond of the Carrie's stories you had heard about. And I think that's probably true for Carrie too, right? That he he's not fond of the person who he had been pushed to become. And a lot of people have that where they take a moment to take stock and look back and see what they did and what they said, who they hurt, and also what they ignored because they felt like they needed to, or they had been told it would be wrong of them to be negative in some way or be close to the message or be unsafe for them to believe the way they had before. And now they're being saved and safe. But yeah, a lot of people are not proud And another reason that I put together the podcast was sort of to do what I could to save people from that. So they wouldn't have years of their life that they didn't want to look back on, not only because of how they were treated, but because they were made to treat others that way too. And to look at others. And a lot of people have trouble shaking superiority, looking down on others, seeing people as less than. And that's very much cultic thinking. And that even though people are given a very hard time within a cult, still they're supposed to be seen or see themselves as superior to everyone else. And then I think it's hard to be among the masses, the people who you look down upon when, you know, you get out. And I think there's something enticing about that message that is is hard to give up for a lot of people. That holier-than-thou mentality is how I say it, and and I do hear about that. That was one of the earliest things I think I recognized as a common thread between various interviews. I, I think my first interview being with Helen and my second being with two former Pentecostal practicing individuals from different branches of Pentecostalism, all of which spoke about that exact thing. And I And I think that's when I started thinking, hang on a minute, these are two very different groups but there's a lot of things here that overlap and of course now I understand that those things obviously exist that's how we're able to quantify what is or isn't a destructive cult so just kind of part parts of my own observations uh, but you talked then about hoping to have a chance to save some individuals through your podcast work, but you have an intervention tomorrow. So this is something (laughs) that you do outside of the podcast as well. I know that you offer therapy and I know that you offer, you've been doing your webinars this year, which I think have, have been pretty popular with different themes. And the intervention work is also something that you're a part of. How did you find yourself in the world of cult intervention? Because that is quite a specific thing. And I think also quite daunting. It is daunting. And I take it very seriously. There's a lot riding on them. There are a lot of hopes. And I don't want to disappoint a family. And I will try to not be involved if I can, if I feel like it really doesn't have the potential or it's not the right time for it. Or the family's not ready to receive that person back because they're angry or there's still discord within the family. And so there's more work that needs to be done to give this person a safer place to land and a more enticing place to land into. What I think 
happened really was that I started doing these sort of mini interventions just in my office, just having a time to explore with someone about what they were involved in and if it really has provided them with all the things that they have been promised and just having them sit with it, not having to answer my question, but just sit with that. What were you told would happen to you? What were you told your life would look like? What were you told would happen to you? Or what happened to people who left? Have any of these things happened? Have you seen it? You don't have to admit it to me, but just sort of admit it to you. And then maybe be ready to look at making a change so that you're not so you're not in a situation where more of your time and your good nature and your trust is being taken advantage of and wasted. I want people to get on and have a life, really, and have a life that makes sense and one where the goals that they want to reach really are reachable, unlike within a cult where it's just this carrot, which I think is inherently so awful and disrespectful and keeps people on hold forever. So yeah, I was doing it in these smaller ways, just through conversation. And then someone approached me and said, you know, we do interventions. A lot of the interventions I do are with people who I really respect, who are not heavy hitting, who also do it the same way with just having a conversation. And they asked me to be involved. I was so nervous the first time because I thought if I were that family and I'd put everything on the line, like they felt like this was their last effort or their last hope, you know, for this to be successful. I didn't want to blow it. What I found interesting about that, and I was brought in as the counselor to help because there was some family discord and there was also a, a, his, some history of mental illness and they wanted me to just sort of be present for it. It seemed like it hadn't been, and I tell families this a lot because this was my first experience and it was very powerful to me. It seemed like it wasn't successful. And that was hard on everyone at the end. And then about two months later, the person left the group and said, that during the intervention, they had to report back each day to their controllers to say that they were they were impervious to what we were doing. They none of it was getting absorbed. They were yes, they agreed they were going to continue saying the mantra in their heads so they could deflect whatever we were telling them. And they were all they were doing a good job, but some of it was getting in. And so they went back to their cult having an education about what a cult is and what it looks like and what happens there. And so they then needed to spend some time with it, I think, to see it with their own eyes. And then it wasn't someone pulling them out of something, but rather sort of arming them with the information so they could make the decision that they thought was really in line with what was true, what was true about the group. What was also interesting, I think, for them when they left was they found out that we had a lot more information about the group than they ever had. And this is true, actually, about almost across the board from people involved in cults. Same thing with people who are with controlling partners, where that controlling partner will say, don't talk to any of my exes, you know, and if you do, they're crazy. They're all crazy. They all, you know, they left me and they all, whatever. There, there's always some story that's being told about everyone else. Controllers like to discredit the source of your information so that you don't listen to the information. So all they're all liars. Same thing with a cult. Don't go online. Don't watch a show about us. Don't research. So people outside of a cult know 10 times more about it in actuality than the members. So because we had information and it wasn't, again, it wasn't that it was necessarily all negative. We had information about 
I don't know, some organization that was started that did feed the hungry, uh, but they also did all these other things. And there were all these lawsuits and the leader used to go by a different name and the group went by a different name because there had been exposés done and because he was wanted on a variety of things. And this person had no idea. So it was like gifting this person (laughs) uh, with information, with a definition of what is a healthy group and what isn't what you should be feeling at this point in your life with how hard you've worked to get here, what you should have in your life by this point that the cult is actually keeping you from. And then they left on their own. So even if uh, an intervention doesn't feel successful on the spot, it doesn't mean that it's not going to be down the road. That felt really nice. That's incredible. That I, I think it's also my understanding that it's unusual for an individual to wake up in the moment as well. I, I remember reading, again, when I was reading Jurette's memoir, An Everyday Cult, she kind of had this shelf-breaking moment. And I, across all of the episodes, have only ever heard that two other times. So two months with that information sounds about right for the threads to start bringing apart the tapestry um, and kind of really destroying this whole picture that the group has created. And I, I think that that's great. Have you, have you had any experience where an individual has said in the moment, oh my goodness, what have I done? Or, oh my goodness, I had no idea. So it has happened actually twice where someone got very quiet and you could see that things were starting to unravel inside and and they were overwhelmed by it. Because not only do they start to see what this group really is, they start to recollect the times that they were having their own doubts that they were taught to ignore. So they kind of conjure up those moments where they thought, oh, this doesn't feel right. And then they have this internal struggle because are they ready to look at the time that was wasted or the money or whatever else they lost? And are they ready to say goodbye to their community, the people they've probably given up their family and friends for? And are they ready to look at themselves as people who trusted people they shouldn't, even though there's doesn't mean there's something wrong with you, just means someone was able to do that to you, which is possible for all of us. There's so much that people need to grapple with in the moment to be able to say, you know what? I think you're right. It's it's never just that easy. But I did have an experience. I don't know if I spoke on your show about this, but I know I've talked about this on, on this show with a woman who had been with a guru for many years. And that while I, I would love to think that it's my incredibly fantastically placed intellectual comment that did it. Um, very often not. Uh, and it's this offhand comment or moment that that strikes people. And so the story that will always stay with me is about this woman who had left, who had been recruited in college by this man who was her new guru, went by the term Swami. She became his partner, his sexual partner, and also kind of his maid, basically cleaning up after him, cooking for him. And she'd been there almost 20 years. And her parents were very concerned because there were times that she cut off contact. She had also had some children by him. And there were, had been reports of child abuse and child neglect. And she had been such a thoughtful person growing up and so kind. And it always talked about wanting to be a mom. And this was not the kind of mom they were sure she wanted to be and how she wanted her kids to be raised. So they thought it must be impacting her. So she was open to meeting with her family 
and there was a reason that they put out there that they thought would entice her to meet with them. It had to do with something else. Someone had passed away in the family and she she wanted to be able to, she had been close with them and she wanted to see something about where they had been buried. So the family got together. They planned that we were also going to be there, the people doing the intervention. And we came with books and we came with our info and I tried to not overwhelm her with too much information, but there was a lot of information about this group out there. The guy's very litigious, so that's why I'm not mentioning the name of the group for your sake and for mine. But we took a break because I thought I'm not getting anywhere with her. She seems also really exhausted. And I think it was just hard for her to focus. And because she looked like she just really wanted to sleep. Like she hadn't slept for a long time, it seemed. She had bags under her eyes. She looked a lot older than she was chronologically, which usually means that you're being put through a very hard time and a lot of uh, neglect for your body, your health, et cetera, and a lot of worry on top of it. So we took a break and we were in a room and there was a coffee and tea service there. And I went over to the end of the table and... She was at the other side and I knew it was going to be too hard for her to kind of climb over all the chairs. And I offered her tea. I said, what kind of tea would you like or coffee? And that's, that's what did it. And it was an incredible moment because she just stopped. She just like stopped and was still. And I thought maybe she didn't hear me. Maybe did I offend her? I'm thinking, well, no, offering coffee and tea. I don't think that's offensive. Mm, What did I do? And yeah, that's when she realized she had not been offered anything. For the last 20 years, no one had taken care of her in any way. The question itself let her have that moment of realizing that was such a foreign sound to her ear and it shouldn't have been for all this time. And so that was it. We just offered her something to drink. So you never know what it's going to be. It says a lot about how people are treated. And I think also, especially women are treated in groups. I think it's interesting to get your insight into what intervention looks like for you as well, because when I hear that term, I perhaps jump straight to people being forced to sit in a room and being held down against their will and all of these negative associations that come with the wrong type of intervention that has taken place historically. And I think it's 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 really good to hear you talk about your intervention work and how it works for you and how it does not look anything like that. <laughs> so for anybody that has considered intervention for a loved one it's kind of like when I spoke to Pat Ryan about mediation as opposed to that kind of classic older neglectful version of intervention it gives people the opportunity to realize that there are alternatives out there that don't consist of you know handcuffing somebody to a chair and stopping them from being able to run back to their group Right. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. I don't do interventions a lot because they take me away from my work and my clients. And so I can't do that very often. But the last couple that I've done actually with Pat Ryan and Joe Kelly, I think the people still don't know there was an intervention done. It was so mellow and they were able to talk about what they like about this person and what they like about the group and what they've gotten from it because all that matters. Let's talk about what you've gotten from it. And then Let's talk about at what expense, what you've given up in order to get these things, because that's the part that really matters. Have you given up your sense of self? Have you given up your direction, the things you wanted to do in your life in order to learn how to levitate? Or I don't know, whatever you think you're able to do now. (laughs) I don't know. Or just to have community. 
And so, yeah, I think they don't know that it happened. And I remember during the intervention, we would go over with each other and think, well, should we tell them? Should we not? Should we just, maybe not. I mean, maybe it doesn't matter. We could just be friends of their family who happened to be there for the day or two and want to talk to them. Because I think there there can be some shame for people, needlessly so, in the idea that there was an intervention planned for them. But yeah, the whole the show intervention that is people's model, I think a lot, there was a show on cable where people have the sense that they're all going to come into a room and all be sitting in chairs and reading a letter and the whole thing. That's the worst idea. Don't do that. Do not do that. Because uh, first of all, it's really good to have kind of one-on-one conversations. Otherwise people feel ganged up on. People feel like they have to also uh, fight against these hordes of people who are trying to rescue them, or they have to play a part and act because they have all these eyes on them. It's just, you don't get an actual, I think, a real conversation. And so, you know, we plan out how many people are going to be in the room at any given time. And to have that person really not feel like it's an ambush, it's carefully done to preserve people's sense of confidence and safety throughout. And I like the way they do it. And so I agree to do it with them. That sounds like a great team up. I would love to have been a part of your collaborative thought process as you went through that. I think it was Pat Ryan who really had me change my thinking of people that have negative stories to tell about their time spent in coercive groups must have only had 100% of a negative experience. And that is absolutely not the case. And again, another kind of pivotal shift in my own thinking where I thought, oh my goodness, of course not. And it was also Pat that taught me to think about how you can communicate with an individual that is defensive or still part of a high demand group by not talking about the group and finding common ground outside of it. Oh, do you like this band? I love that band. Let's talk about how much we like that band. And once we've established a safe pattern of communication, we can then kind of move into some of the more difficult stuff. So it's it's absolutely amazing for my own education to hear you talk about how you worked with Pat Ryan, who also helped me to understand those things about groups. And uh, something I found very interesting about what you've just said about interventions and the way they're portrayed in the media is that the misconceptions around cults, coercion, and individuals that find themselves involved in these groups, a lot of that comes from the impact that the media has had through headlines like sex cult that we spoke about before, through documentaries that only focus on the DOS part of Nexium, when actually the whole story is incredibly important for us to understand how that happened in the first place. And now we're at this point where there's wilderness programs where troubled teens are being almost set up to look like wilderness programs are a great thing in America and how, you know, kids should want to be part of these really cool edgy TV shows. And you've got TLC's Sister Wives and Big Love that kind of gives this false narrative around forced polygamy being a really good thing and how women should want to have sister wives, which is obviously, again, not true. And there's also all of this stuff that comes with large group awareness training and and how that's presented to be a, a really positive thing when we know that it isn't always the case. Life Spring, there are so many troubled teen industry 
boarding schools and wilderness programs that have based their blueprint on the teachings of Livespring and LGATS. And it all just comes back around. Again, I've said this a million times. It's absolutely what fascinates me, but it is hindering the work that everybody else in this field is trying to do by reinforcing incorrect narratives and perceptions about cults coercion and these environments that exist where people are suffering, people are dying, people are being medically neglected. And it drives me wild when people say, oh my goodness, I can't wait for this new series of sister wives to come out. Or people quote Osho and you're like, stop quoting Osho. Why are we all still quoting Osho? Does nobody realize who that person is? And uh, most of the time they don't because the rebranding has been so successful. But I could just, yeah, I could just shout from the rooftop. I'll get on my soapbox all day and talk about why we should not be endorsing cult leaders in pop culture. <laughs> right. I'm really glad that you brought that up too, about how there are so many different groups that, yes, are mis portrayed in this sort of romanticized way in television land. And also, yes, with teen treatment, there's some that are fine. It all depends on who's running a place to know if it's going to be safe or not. And so if a person really cares about the people there and they're willing to take responsibility if something doesn't work out and they have credentials of some sort and they also care if someone's harmed by what they're doing, they're willing to make adjustments based on that, then you have the ability to have it be a safer place. I think about people who are running a lot of these residential programs who don't have one credential to their name and they have a this sort of sadism that runs through this organization and people, you know, kids will often try to escape and then be treated as criminals for trying to escape, but they're really trying to escape for good reasons. I mean, it's a, it's kind of a horrible catch 22 that that happens. And then also kids are often not believed and not listened to and seen as acting out, et cetera. So they, they don't have credences and given to them for what they're saying. I think it's good that we're talking about this. And even with all the talking about it, it still exists in droves. You know, one would think now, because this didn't exist when I started, that there were podcasts, well, there wasn't a podcast <laughs> ever, uh, but that people could talk about this and it would still exist. It still exists in the same numbers, if not more so, I think because of the internet and whatever else. But I hear just when people ask me what I do, if I need to get out of wherever I am quickly, like if I'm, you know, in a hurry, I'll say I'm a therapist. <laughs> and if they ask me what, you know, if I have more time and they ask me specifically what kind of work I do, I'll let them know. And then a whole conversation ensues. I'm sure when people ask you about your your work and what you talk about, <gasps> you know, they want to hear more about it. But people who I talk to almost invariably will say, oh, well, I went with my uh, shaman and we did ayahuasca in Peru. And then I went to my psychic who told me that I should do this or that. Now, are these places dangerous? Mm, sometimes yes, sometimes no. But I think here they just heard me talk about cults. And then they want to tell me about how they get involved in things which are fine. And this is how they're different from people getting involved in cults. And then they name all these things that are problematic, thinking that they're safe. But how many people are engaged in this sort of thing and getting involved with healers and people? Oh, there's so many new techniques of quote unquote therapy and coaching techniques and other things. There will always be snake oil salesmen, always. And one would think, yeah, with all this education, there would be less so, but there really isn't. That makes me wonder, just looking at it more sociologically, 
you know, why is it that it's still so prevalent? I know we're almost done with our time, but I'm wondering what you think about that, about why we are prone to this, even after there's been so much education. I think I say now, even to my partner who hears me just drove on and on and on and on about this stuff 24 seven, is that even after a thousand or so hours of, of podcast work, I could still be influenced into joining a high demand group or being in some type of coercive environment. And I think that no matter how much education we are able to attain around this subject, all of us are still vulnerable to some degree. So for individuals who have absolutely no idea that that person knocking on your door selling you Avon product is involved in a cult. I thought that cults were like once every 10 years, but they are absolutely all around us all of the time. So it's almost like you go from thinking that cults don't really exist to how do I not be in the vicinity of a cult? Because actually I'm just rubbing shoulders with cult members all over the show. So I don't really know how we solve that issue. I don't know how we find some middle ground where we can understand that there is education for ourselves and others that needs to take place, but also not ask everybody if, you know, they're having to pay a 500 pound upfront subscription for their yoga group and things like this. So that's the kind of space that I'm in at the moment. And I found myself having one of these shifts in my own thinking when I, when I listened to your recent panel at the International Cultic Studies Association conference, when you were discussing QAnon and Q believers. And at that point, in time, I don't think that I'd consciously made that connection between individuals in cults and conspiracy theorists wrapped up in QAnon and how actually a lot of the tactics that these individuals have been subjected to are very similar and often one and the same. And it's not like, how could somebody ever believe anything like that? It's like, let's look at why let's look at the person let's not look at the belief system let's look at the individual and then we can ask the questions how does a a loving husband who's never really been overly political have this belief system now that has the potential to you know or has even moved offline into real life harm against other people and it was only when you were talking about sensitivity and compassion around individuals who have had this huge personality shift and identity shift and changes in their whole belief system that i realized that actually i have so much work that i need to do in understanding that compassion has to extend to absolutely everyone even occasionally sometimes individuals like Kerry Noble. And so I just wanted to say a personal thank you to you for giving me that education and that lesson and allowing me to progress my own thinking further, because I would never want to interview somebody who was involved in a cult or a a high demand group or, or whatever terminology people prefer to use. I would never want to interview a person and think in my mind, how did you fall for that? Which is kind of the way I was thinking about QAnon. And now I realize that we have to approach all of this stuff across the board with the same compassion and mentality. Otherwise, how can we ever 
hope to help those individuals and all of their loved ones that have been impacted by these things. So I just um, wanted to extend my gratitude to you for helping me even further along this journey, because I don't have formal education in this field yet. And it's important that I try to learn from those that do have credentials so that I'm, I'm not, you know, I have a platform where I speak to people. And although I don't really tend to offer opinions or diagnose anyone or anything like that, there could be times where I say something that somebody else then takes as truth or somebody else then takes as fact. And that's important to realize that I need to make sure that my own information is is credible and it's coming from those that have made those credible statements. Well, thank you for that. I mean, it takes it takes some doing, though, to be honest. When someone is attacking you, when someone is getting personally insulting, and that happens a lot with our political landscape now and with conspiratorial thinkers, I've found, you know, they go after these, these ways of trying to make ad hominem attacks. And it's hard then to to want to be sort of civil and patient and say, let, let me see if I can understand you, even though you just called me awful things. So I do try to see it. Uh, well, I try to understand the reason for that behavior. And if it is an overcompensation for having felt powerless at other times in their life, if it is out of a nervousness about putting your armor up because you're afraid that if you're not on the offense, you're then going to be on the defense because that's how the world has been painted for you. Just to get it, to get where, where it's coming from. But it's it's hard in the moment when you're sort of ducking for cover. <laughs> um, but I think of, and I'm not trying to, and I, I don't want to be quoted in this way, but I don't want to, you know, make it seem like I'm likening these people with animals, injured animals. But I think of an injured animal because I was always raised with a lot of animals. And I think of an injured animal that you come close to who will growl and try to bite some of the time because they're scared and because they're in pain. And so I, I kind of get into that mode of trying to think where that might be coming from, that they're scared that, or they, they were the, scared themselves or the groups they've gotten involved in have fed them fear. And so they don't want you to take it away from them because terrible things are going to happen to, to them or to the world if people don't agree. So they come out fighting and biting you know, scary people are scared people. Like, like I have to get into, I have to do these mantras for myself just to have what I think is the potential to have a reasonable conversation where a person feels really heard. And it's still okay though, to set your boundary. I mean, when I talk to families, they're like, well, do I just let myself get beaten up? So we have this conversation and maybe during the first conversation, but then you say, I would love to continue it if we can hold off on doing the following things in either direction, you know, it's kind of have a set up sort of the rules of engagement so that it can continue, but it's a hard one. It's definitely a challenge. So anyway, but it was wonderful. It's wonderful to talk to you and to know that you've learned so much just by talking to people and that you're interested in this subject. That is so endlessly interesting to me, but I'm glad that the world has taken interest. And I, I just hope that the world's interest stays in line with how much people need to keep being reminded of these messages because it's very easy to succumb to these manipulations, all too easy. It is. And it's my hope that if an individual listens to one episode and feels validated in themselves in a way that they haven't 
been before just from listening to somebody else's story or people have language and definitions that they can put to experiences that they've had that they really haven't been able to explore because they didn't have the the, the right the right tools any of, of these things that can happen from somebody just listening to one guest's story it could change x amount of lives and and that's really my hope for the show and i think that between us and the volume of episodes that exists between the indoctrination podcast and the cult vault there's such a, a vast amount of of resource between the the two podcasts so i think it's 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 really wonderful work and i just find it interesting i can't i can't see myself stopping anytime soon because there's too many questions that have yet to be answered. And I don't even know if I know what all of those questions are yet. So I really appreciate you, Rachel, and your time and for all of the education that I've got vicariously through your work and your platform. So thank you so much for this opportunity today. So close to Christmas as well. Yeah, it's nice. And I hope the new year brings more sanity for all of us and it brings more health and happiness and a feeling of uh, of security so that people don't have to go out searching for it anyway it was lovely happy holidays happy new year have a great one rachel i'll speak to you soon one more thing before you go Thank you so much to Casey for this podcast interview, for becoming part of this community of people who care about this issue, people who care about it as a human rights issue, people who just also find it fascinating, and people also who are interested in it because they're just finding it to be something that is meaningful. You know, one does not have to have had a personal experience in something in order to care about it. It would be a very different world if that were the case, if everyone who got involved in cancer research could only be involved because they had cancer themselves. Thank goodness for those who haven't, who want to jump in and help and spread awareness and raise funds. Same thing with any cause. Same thing with this one. There are also plenty of people who will talk about what it's like for people who have been taken over in cults, in abusive relationships, counselors and others who work with people who have been abused, who have not been abused themselves, but they care. And they care on a very deep level. I care also for the people who have been abused in ways that I cannot necessarily relate to on a personal level. And I give a lot of credit to the people who present as men who care about women's withstanding of abuse or the fact that they were victimized in any way. And the same goes in reverse. You know, when uh, a couple months ago I was asked by Casey to be involved in a program that she was putting on with different speakers to talk about women's issues in cults, women's experiences in cults, it is true that men are roundly abused in many ways. And sometimes men deal with so much guilt afterwards that they could not protect the women if it was a situation where the women were being abused or molested, uh, sexually abused and otherwise. And they couldn't protect their sisters, their, their mothers, their daughters, and what that does to them. 
It's a very important subject when you think about different gender roles within cultic systems, when you think about the rights that are taken away. This is what this work is all about. It's about helping people see that there are people out there who are thieves who will take away your ability to have your say over yourself, over your sanity, over your safety. And my hope is that through this work, I can help people learn to discern when they're in something that is not healthy for them, when they're in a relationship where someone is taking advantage of them. When people like Casey get involved and say, I just think this is interesting and I care, even though I haven't really experienced it myself, it reminds me of people who were marching with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who had not been enslaved themselves, who had not been relegated to have to use the Blacks only water fountain. And they still cared and they still marched and they still risked themselves. Casey is someone who like others in this field, who care, I think, uh, because it is something that also will affect future generations. And as a parent, as a fellow parent, I think she wants her world to be a safer one as it's passed down from generation to generation. When we were talking a little bit about my time in Liverpool, where she lives now, there was something about community that was very powerful. I got to experience it much more in Liverpool than when I was growing up here in LA, even though I had my community of friends and I had my community of people my parents knew and people on my street. But there was a communal sense within certain towns, the kind of pub culture, the people playing outside with each other culture that I hadn't really fully experienced here in LA. I got a little taste of it when I lived in Boston, had more of a taste of it when I lived in New York, but I definitely got a taste of it in Liverpool. One of the things that people talk about when they talk about people who have gotten into trouble, who have gotten into trouble with the law, who have gotten put in jail, who have found their way into gangs or cults, is that if there had been a community supporting them, surrounding them, that was watching them, that made them feel connected, that made them feel cared for. So many of the things that then they went on and did could have been prevented. They wouldn't have needed to get involved in a gang in order to have a sense of belonging. They wouldn't have needed to get involved in a cult to have a sense of community. They wouldn't have needed to do something in order to deal with the fact that they just didn't feel good about themselves or they just didn't feel right in their lives because they would have. They would have felt cared for and loved by the community around them. I can't underscore enough how important it is for people to greet each other like they're all part of the same community. Whether you know each other or not, when you go out into the street, when you go out onto the subway, when you park your car and you get out and you see people walking by in the parking lot, wherever you interact with people, say hi if you can. Ask if someone needs a hand with anything. Ask if they are okay if you see them sitting on the curb looking a little forlorn, looking a little sad. They might just be taking a call and sitting down and they'll let you know and they'll point to their earbuds to let you know but they might also be injured and be afraid to ask for help. You never know. It's worth a try. Community makes such a difference. And as you've heard me say on this podcast before, there were so many people who stayed in bad situations just because they were worried that when they left, they would be alone. So let's see what we can do to shift this world in our own ways 
so that people don't ever have to feel that way. Our planet is highly populated. There's no reason for anyone to feel alone. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.